Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardi Nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome to the Cardi Nerds Beyond the Board series, where we build on the Mayo Clinic Cardiology Board Review course to go, you guessed it, beyond the boards and put our knowledge to practice with a series of illustrative cases. Today, we dive into mechanical complications of myocardial infarction. Audio editing was performed by me, Tina Reddy, intern of the Cardio Nerds Academy, representing House Thomas, and fourth-year medical student at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans. Thank you for being here. Joining us are our fellow leads, Drs. Jenna Skaramski and Jaya Kanduri. Jenna is CardiNerd's Fit Ambassador and Chief Cardiology Fellow at UPMC, interested in advanced heart failure, critical care, and women's cardiovascular health. Jenna is also obtaining her Master's in Medical Education and has been just a phenomenal person to work with all around. Jenna, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Amit. And I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Jaya Kanduri. Jaya just started an interventional cardiology fellowship at Weill Cornell in NYC, where she also completed her general cardiology fellowship. She originally hails from New Jersey, where she went to undergrad and medical school, followed by a brief move to Boston for residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Thanks, Jenna. We are joined by master educator, Dr. Jeffrey Geske. Dr. Geske is an advanced cardiovascular imaging specialist at the Mayo Clinic, where he also serves as the cardiology and vascular medicine course director of the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine, and as a co-director of the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Board Review. After completing college at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Geske joined the Mayo Clinic for medical school, where he remained for residency, cardiology, and imaging fellowships. Dr. Geske, we are so honored to have you join the Cardio Nerds. And before we dive in, would you like to share with us what kept you at Mayo Clinic and the great state of Minnesota all these years? Well, it's certainly not the tropical winters. I think that it's fair to say that I grew up in Minnesota, so this has always been kind of home for me. But I don't know that I had anticipated staying at one spot for my entire training. When I came here for medical school, I did not know that I was going to end up in cardiology. That maybe it's going to be a, a surgeon, or I guess I don't know. But I really developed a great relationship with several mentors, including Dr. Nishimura and Dr. Am, and people who are, uh, of course, familiar to the cardio nerds. And I think that's really a main thing that kept me here, is that fantastic mentoring. And Mayo Clinic is just a wonderful place. It's the number one hospital in the nation, and it is fantastic to work at a place where the needs of the patient come first. Amazing. Thanks for sharing. I didn't realize you were from Minnesota, so that also explains that. All right. Well, let's get started with the case. So we have some recent acute myocardial infarction cases our cardio nerds have cared for around the hospital, and we're hoping to get your thoughts on them. Our first case is Mr. Stemmy. He's a 68-year-old man with a past medical history significant for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. He was walking his dog on a Saturday morning when he began having an out of 10 chest pain that felt like pressure and was associated with diaphoresis and nausea. His pain improved but didn't remit when he got home to rest, and he was brought by EMS to the emergency department. On arrival, his heart rate was 110 beats per minute and blood pressure was 90 over 50. He was found to have an anterior STEMI on EKG. The ED resident called the cardiology follow-on call and asked about getting IV metoprolol in the meantime. Dr. Gaspi, putting yourself in this fellow's position, what are you thinking about for this patient and why are you thinking it? 
I think this is a scenario that comes up a fair amount. You know, when you think back to learning the very basics of care for MI, right? We thought of Mona or Mona B or kind of these initial medicines that we'll use for care of MI. But there's some things about this case that bother me. The first thing that stands out to me is the heart rate. And presumably the heart rate of 110 is a sinus tachycardia because we didn't say that this was AFib or something. But sinus tachycardia is a harbinger of doom. This is the sympathetic nervous system waving the red flag that says something is going on. And it is such an insult to the physiology that we're trying to maintain cardiac output by ramping up the heart rate. And so that in itself really bothers me. And there's this paradoxical relationship where when patients present with sinus tachycardia, you think like, oh, I want to correct that. But one of the worst things you can do is actually give them beta blockade because it can really precipitate cardiogenic shock. And this patient already has a borderline blood pressure for cardiogenic shock. It'd be helpful, of course, to know what their baseline blood pressure is, knowing that they have a significant history for hypertension, as you said. I'm guessing that 90 over 55 is well below their baseline, but I would be really hesitant in someone who has a sinus tachycardia, a low blood pressure, and is having an anterior MI to institute IV metoprolol. I think there's a lot of other ways that we could think about preserving myocytes, and I worry that IV metoprolol would actually precipitate cardiogenic shock. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, my favorite UP attending always says that his most intimidating rhythm is sinus tachycardia because he always says that's a harbinger of doom. So I love that you both say the same. Well, Mr. Stemmy gets taken to the cath lab and he's found to have a proximal LAD culprit lesion with Timmy zero flow. During his PCI, his blood pressure drops to 80 over 49. His heart rate remains in the one tens and he has a new four liter oxygen requirement. Aside from the ongoing PCI, what kind of support should we offer to this patient? What's the evidence base for mechanical circulatory support for acute myocardial infarction circulatory support? Well, even though this patient has been revascularized, we can see that their hemodynamics are actually worse. And that's not too surprising, knowing that they came in with an anterior MI, sinus tachycardia, and hypotension to start. And even though cardiogenic shock occurs in a minority of acute myocardial infarctions, only like 10%, we see that it accounts for 70 to 80% of the mortality associated with acute MI. It's really a villainous process. And I think that makes it ripe for board review questions for board questions, as well as just for your practice, knowing what to do in these patients who are so critically ill. And there's been some trials looking at this. We already mentioned that we tend to avoid beta blockade because in patients with borderline hemodynamics, high-dose protocolized IV beta blockade actually increases the risk of cardiogenic shock. But then once you have someone who's actually having shock, we know that revascularization comes up. This person went to revascularization, but timing of revascularization has been looked at. And the SHOCK-1 trial really showed that in patients less than 75 years of age, those are the patients that really benefit most from early revascularization. I'll be honest, my practice, I would take in virtually all patients who are clinically appropriate to earlier revascularization, even those greater than 75. To your question about mechanical support, what sort of data do we have about that? We talked about the shock one trial. So what would come next? The shock two trial. And the shock two trial was looking at use of balloon pumps in non-rupture cardiogenic shock. And get this, it was a negative trial. So at 30 days and one year, they didn't see mortality benefits in those patients treated with intraaortic balloon pump. 
So you'd think, okay, well, the guidelines then are going to say don't use balloon pump. But how that's trickled down into guidelines is really fascinating to me. The U.S. guidelines, which were published in circulation in 2013, they say class 2A for intraoretic balloon pump, you know, support people who are sick. Whereas the European guidelines, which were published in 2019, are actually class 3. Don't do it. And I think that the discrepancy there actually deals with those six years in between publication of the guidelines, because I think we've seen a revolution or a growth of mechanical support. And now we have things like Impella, where we are able to provide more support and intraoretic balloon pumps may not actually be the best first-line therapy. And we're starting to see trials looking at this. Interestingly, one of the first trials out the gate called the IMPRESS trial was looking at Impella versus intraoretic balloon pump in cardiogenic shock. It was a fairly small trial, 48 people. Compare that to the greater than 45,000 that were in the COMMIT trial. So this is a small trial, and it was a negative trial as well. There's no difference. But then there's been some observational data, like the Detroit Cardiogenic Shock Initiative, or there's been some catheter-based VAD registries that have shown improvement in outcomes. And so I think we're really going to see the answer to this in some upcoming trials. One of them is named the Danger Shock Trial. And what a name. And it's actually a combination of Danish and German cohorts. And so they took D-A-N from Danish and G-E-R from German. So it's Danger Shock Trial. I just love how they name trials. And so that and the Recover IV trial, I think, are going to be ones that really give us more information about how to apply this into our clinical practice. That was great, Dr. Gesky. And yeah, the naming the trials is fabulous and, and relevant here. But, you know, there are trials and guidelines, and then there are regional institutional variations and individual preferences. How do you synthesize all of this in your own practice? And what do you view as a practice pattern for MCS and specifically the percutaneous VADs like Impella? And do you think the evidence supports their use in which contexts? It's a great question, particularly in this case where guidelines are discrepant. So how do we implement this into practice? I would say in Mayo Clinic's practice and in our ICU, we're seeing a gradual increase in mechanical support use of Impella, but it really ends up being a multidisciplinary decision. And the patients that we have a lower threshold to use this in are going to be perhaps a young patient who has a delayed presentation for MI and is going to be someone who's potentially transplantable or perhaps someone who comes in not with an MI, but with fulminant myocarditis and has profound cardiogenic shock and is, again, going to be someone who is more likely to be transplanted or be served best with destination therapy. In perhaps an older patient or someone who transplant is less on the horizon, I think that the jury's a little bit out about what to do with those patients and clinical judgment comes into play, whether to use a balloon pump or greater level support. And I, for one, am looking forward to how these upcoming trials will shape the guidelines and give some clarity to that. Thank you, Dr. Geske. That was awesome. It's really helpful to hear, like you mentioned, when there are discrepancies in practice, how each institution handles the data. But as you also mentioned, hopefully we'll have a lot more data coming up to help guide our decision making. Okay, let's move on to case two with our next patient, Ms. Stented, who is a 72-year-old woman who was presented to the emergency room with two hours of unremitting chest pain, lightheadedness, and nausea with one bout of non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. 
She was given nitro by EMS with some improvement in her chest pain, but resultant hypotension to 75 over 45. On physical exam, she was noted to have an elevated JVP as well as an S3 on cardiac auscultation, and she is statting 100% on Brumaire. Dr. Geske, what are your thoughts on the initial diagnosis of this patient? And what are you looking for on physical exam in addition to what we already know? Thanks. I like this because we're getting the physical exam even before the EKG, which is how I still think about patients, even though oftentimes in the ER, the EKG is almost like an additional vital sign. In this patient who comes in with hypotension, elevated JVP, and clear lungs, I'm really thinking about an RV infarct. And there are some other things here that clue us in. One is the hypotension that resulted from nitroglycerin. And in RV infarct, we know that patients are profoundly preload dependent. And the venodilation that's associated with nitroglycerin, even though it's something that helps with angina because it reduces myocardial wall tension and therefore reduces myocardial oxygen demand, can rather strikingly drop blood pressure in an RV infarct. And even though patients may have elevated neck veins, they're actually in need of fluids because the L LV is underfilled, and so LV or systemic preload is low. And another thing that clues me in, even though it's not a part of that classic triad of hypotension, clear lungs, and elevated JVP, is some of the GI symptoms here. So I think nausea and emesis, while they can go along with any MI, frequently do pair with RV infarct. And so this is someone I am eager to get an EKG. And not only just a plain EKG, I would be there when they came to put the leads on and I'd make sure that they got right-sided leads because I'm looking for ST elevation, not only in lead V1, which is going to be you know to the right of midline, but also in right-sided leads, something like V4R because ST elevation in those leads is going to be the most sensitive ECG marker for RV infarct, which is really where my clinical suspicion is based on this clinical scenario. That's awesome. And like you said, it is super important to actually pay attention to the physical exam in this situation. So our patient did end up getting an EKG eventually and was concerning for an inferior MI, as you suspected. So she is taken immediately to the cath lab. And in the case, she is found to have an acute proximal RCA with ruptured plaque and TIMI-1 flow. And the RCA is noted to be a dominant right system. During PCI, her hypotension resolves, but she develops a Mobitz type 2 heart block on telemetry. Dr. Geske, should we put in a temporary pacemaker in this situation? Well, Jay, you're not making it easy for me here. I think that this does require some thought. We know that AV synchrony is important in RV infarct. We just said how preload dependent you are, and so that atrial kick can really be something that matters. And someone who is going into greater degrees of heart block, we're going to end up having a less optimized system. Now, with that said, I would have some hesitancy to do this. In RV infarcts, there can be vagal-mediated arrhythmias, particularly bradyarrhythmias, and a lot of ones like what you just described will actually resolve on their own and not require pacing. Furthermore, placing a temporary pacemaker, you're doing it into an RV that just infarcted, and I think that the risk of perforation goes up. So I think what I would do is I would first work to optimize all other aspects hemodynamically. You already brought them to the cath lab, so prompt reperfusion. I would maintain their RV preload, and I would say neck veins aren't a great way to do that, even though I love physical examination. All of these patients are going to have elevated JVP, and many times we'll end up giving them three, four, five liters of fluids. 
I think I would consider inotropes. I would make sure we're avoiding hypoxia. It's a potent pulmonary vasoconstrictor. And by having that, you can actually increase RV afterload, which would make RV function worse. And we can go back to mechanical support, like we talked about with our first case, that there is such a thing as RV mechanical support, like the Protect Duo or the RP Impella. And I've even seen rare cases with biventricular support where we can use both if you have someone who has low enough LV output. I would say that's more so the exception than the rule. But I would go through all of those in my mind first, try and see if I can wait out the Mobitz 2. And with that said, I actually discussed with Dr. Anavakar, one of our CCU attendings, a similar question recently. And he recalled a case where he had placed a temporary pacemaker despite the risks because he had optimized the other things and that substantially improved hemodynamics. So it's not off the table, but it's also lower on my list of interventions to do because of the risks associated with placing a pacemaker during RV infarct and also the fact that this may self-resolve. Fantastic. Thank you for that nuanced answer. Okay, we have one final case. Our final case is about, you may guess, Ms. Balloon. Ms. Balloon is an 82-year-old woman with past medical history significant for hypertension who presented to her local hospital with chest pain. She was found to have an anterior STEMI on EKG. She received lytic therapy given in three-hour distance from the closest cath lab. ST elevations improved marginally, and she was emergently transferred to her cath lab, where she received rescue PCI to the proximal LAD. Upon arrival in the CCU, her initial TTE demonstrated an apical infarct. There's concern for cardiogenic shock, and she started on a dopamine drip, which worsens her hypotension. What should we be focusing on with bedside TTE, Dr. Gusty? It's a great question. I think that echo is a workhorse in this early post-MI setting because there's a lot of different things that can go on. And hypotension may be driven by a number of different mechanical processes. In our first case, we talked about cardiogenic shock, and it seems like that was where this was headed. And expectedly so. You know, this is someone who came in with an anterior STEMI, and because the LID supplies 40 to 50% of the myocardium, it's a great scenario for cardiogenic shock. But the response here to dobutamine is a little bit counterintuitive to what you might have thought would happen then if that was going on. I will say I think there's been a shift towards use of norepinephrine as the inotrope of choice in cardiogenic shock. And so, you know, I might wonder first if the agent was playing a role, but then I think echo really plays such a key role here, particularly in someone who's knocked out their apex. A lot of times LAD can wrap around the apex and supply the entirety of the apex. And there can be scenarios where if the apex is out, you can develop a compensatory hyperdynamic basal contractile function. And you can get dynamic left ventricular alpha tract obstruction akin to hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And you might say, listen, that sounds like such a unique scenario, great for a case report, but why talk about it? Why focus one of our you know, discussions on that particular aspect? And I think the reason is, it's because the treatment difference so much, right? In cardiogenic shock, we're focusing on support through inotropes. But if your problem that's resulting in hypotension is actually hyperdynamic basal contractile function, inotropes can make it worse. And the treatment is actually beta blockade. You know, that thing that we said we don't do in cardiogenic shock. So I would approach this by clarifying if that really is what's occurring. Is there dynamic left ventricular alpha tract obstruction? Since this person has been reperfused, 
I would think about beta blockade. I'd be cautious. I probably wouldn't give them a giant slug of IV beta blockade, but I would, you know, you could think about Esmolol as a way to have something that's quick on and quick off. Or if you're really concerned, you could also give them phenylephrine. Phenylephrine could improve blood pressure. It also increases afterload. And so what the correct mix of things to do is really is dependent upon your echocardiographic diagnosis. And, you know, there are other mechanical complications beyond dynamic alpha tract obstruction and cardiogenic shock, and we'd want to make sure that we rule out those as well. Awesome. Thank you. That's such a wonderful example of how Echo First is really impactful in, in the way that we treat our patients. I don't know that I had this on my differential as a resident overnight in the CCU while I was still in residency. So hopefully we can change that for a few listeners. So this patient stabilized with initial management, and she actually began physical therapy about three days later when she became acutely hypotensive and dyspneic. What should we be looking for on physical exam for this patient to help distinguish her pathology? Oh boy, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. I get chills. We have an elderly woman with her first anterior MI on hospital day three becoming unstable. Bells should be going off that this is the scenario for rupture. And rupture post-MI really happens days three to five is kind of the peak. This is when neutrophils are dumping their contents and the myocardium is transitioning from a nice supportive myocardium to smushed peas or mashed potatoes. The consistency of the tissue and the tissue integrity is so much lower. And right on the border between healthy tissue and mashed potatoes, right at that ischemic penumbrum is where tears occur. And so I want to know where is she tearing? And I think you have to have a high index for suspicion. I think you have to move quickly because with each of the rupture locations, time is of the essence. And so if we're playing the odds and you say, well, which rupture location ruptures most, that's going to be the free wall. So the free wall is the greatest site of rupture, with the other two being VSD or papillary muscle rupture. And from the scenario that we have so far, I actually don't know. There are certainly clinical things that make these seem more like one than the other. So free wall rupture, if it's partial, may present just as a vagal event that heralds that initial tear. And then an echo that reveals a new pericardial effusion should raise suspicions for incomplete rupture. Unfortunately, sometimes the initial presentation for free wall rupture is PEA arrest, and survival through that event is abysmally low. Whereas if it's recognized soon enough with, say, that pericardial effusion, you can whisk the patient down to surgery. They may survive the event. Mortality there is still high, but the quicker you can get them to surgery, the better. What about VSD? VSD is, again, the same sort of risk factors, advanced age, female sex, first MI with a lack of collaterals. These patients will present with hypotension, chest discomfort, dyspnea, but they have a really harsh systolic murmur. Sometimes grade four, there can be a palpable thrill. And these patients can either be laying down or sitting up. While VSD places increased flow through the lungs, it is oftentimes not such dramatic flow that it puts them into flash pulmonary edema. Say you had a swan gans in place, you might see an increased V wave in a VSD. Maybe that's what the V stands for. V wave SD. I don't know. Probably not. But that is not specific to a VSD. You can actually get a V wave from a papillary muscle rupture. And the V wave in a VSD is from the increased flow through the pulmonary circuit, whereas the V wave in a papillary muscle rupture is from the regurgitant flow through the mitral valve. 
But one thing that you can find on a right heart catheterization to confirm a VSD would be a step up in the right ventricle. And I think your point, echo first, let's make the hashtag continue to trend, is really a key thing here. But knowing where to look and what you're looking for is important because sometimes a VSD can be tricky to identify. It can be in different locations. I think of like two flavors to VSD. There's the inferoceptal flavor. This tends to go along more so with RCA infarcts. And that is a nastier variety because the inferoceptum is right near the valves and the conduction tissue. It tends to have worse outcomes. In someone who presents like this patient with an anterior mind, they've knocked out their apex, you can actually get an apical VSD. And if you're not looking for it on echo, you can actually miss it. It may seem like, really? But you need to really fan through the septum and color through the septum to find it. Now, the third rupture type is that of papillary muscle rupture. And I think a key thing about this, it's the only one of the three ruptures that actually happens with NSTEMIs as well. You think with VSD and free wall rupture that it's a transmural infarct. But for papillary muscle rupture, because the papillary muscles are a subendocardial structure, it can be an, either an NSTEMI or obviously a STEMI as well that can disrupt the papillary muscles. And these patients, they'll have a V-wave, but they're going to look different. Humans don't tolerate sudden torrential MR very well. So I always think if you have a patient who's sitting bolt upright in bed in flash pulmonary edema, that's someone that I think about papillary muscle rupture. And they may or may not have a murmur, which, you know, you'd say, well, hey, listen, there's a lot of MR. Shouldn't there be a loud murmur? There's a loud murmur with VSD. You even said it could feel a thrill. But sometimes in papillary muscle rupture, when you break the valve and it's this wide open hole, there may even be no murmur. And the side of me that tends to simplify things, because this can be a lot to think about when someone is critically ill and rapidly declining. I just think about whistling. When you whistle with a small hole, you can get a loud sound. But when you whistle with a big hole, like try and whistle with your mouth wide open, you're not going to get a loud sound. And that's the same thing for when you break the mitral valve. Torrential MR may have no sound. And so don't necessarily use in these cases where you have an elderly woman presenting with her first MI, particularly an anterior MI, now three to five days post-infarct with a sudden clinical change. As much as I love physical exam, in that scenario, we need to go straight to the echo because you don't want to waste time. You want to identify where the site of rupture is so that you can take action. Thanks, Dr. Geske. So as we suspected in someone with a large anterior MI, and after pretty thorough interrogation on transthoracic echo, we actually were able to see some flow at the apical septum concerning for an acute VSD. So knowing this information, Dr. Geske, how should we manage this patient? Does she need some time to cool off and allow her tissues to fibrose a bit? What is the appropriate management in this situation? And in the alternate situation, what would we do if she actually had a papillary muscle rupture? So I think with either scenario, the clock is ticking. This is a wake the surgeon up in the middle of the night sort of call. It's very important to confirm the site of rupture to make sure you know what you're talking about. So I wouldn't wake the surgeon up while I've called for the echo or while I'm doing the echo, but immediately I would get a surgeon on board. And I think that would hold true with either papillary muscle rupture or VSD or partial free wall rupture. In any of those scenarios, the more time that passes, the more likely that this is to result in hemodynamic instability. And it's not predictable. You might say, listen, you know, she's actually, since we did the echo, her hemodynamics have been okay. 
you can take someone who has hemodynamic stability and then has abrupt, unexpected, unpredictable progression. And so bringing in that surgical expertise early is really important. For papillary muscle rupture, we're going to be thinking about going for mitral valve replacement. For VSD, we're going to be thinking about closing that VSD. And I will say there is evolving thoughts regarding percutaneous closure of VSD. And I think this is another area, like we mentioned with mechanical support for cardiogenic shock, that we will hopefully begin to see more clarity in the literature, because this is not a great time for a surgeon to go in and operate, right? Remember, we said that the tissue integrity is like mushed peas or like mashed potatoes, and so sewing into that mushy tissue is going to be difficult and mortality for these operations is high. So should we be taking a percutaneous approach for VSD? That's a great question. And it is perhaps something where having multidisciplinary discussions is important. And oftentimes now we will make sure that the surgeon is on board because that is the standard of care to have surgical offering for this. And if the surgeon is reluctant or thinks anatomy is not great, then having structural interventional cardiology there to comment on things is, I think, helpful. And just like how I mentioned that there's two flavors of VSD, the approach to repair of a VSD also has two different versions. That inferior basal VSD that's by the valves and the conduction system oftentimes has a much more serpiginous course. It's going to have higher operative mortality, yet it's also probably less amenable to percutaneous closure because it's abutting up against those valves. There's much less likely to be an appropriate rim of tissue. So I think in someone with an apical VSD like this one, I would want to know about their operative candidacy. I would want to have the surgeon view the images. I would want to know the size of the defect. A larger defect makes me perhaps lean more towards surgery and less towards percutaneous closure. And I would want to make sure that we've all had a discussion about this. But it's a rather quick discussion. It's kind of shoot from the hip sort of stuff because time really matters here. Sometimes the question will come up, say the surgeon says, yeah, let's go. Should we stop at the cath lab on the way down there to make sure that the stent that was just placed is okay? And I think in the vast majority of times, the answer to that is no, because that adds unnecessary delay. Similarly, should we be placing a balloon pump? Should we be implementing mechanical support? Maybe. I think you need to evaluate the patient's hemodynamics and decide as well if this is going to cause delay in operative intervention. If it's something that, you know, the surgeon is coming in and they're prepping the OR and while they're doing that, you can keep the patient more stable by doing a balloon pump. Great. If it's something that is going to delay getting to the OR for definitive management, I don't think it's probably the right choice. So you have to play that by ear. You have to know what your resources are. But I think time really matters. Wow. Well, this has been just a phenomenal discussion. Really challenging cases. And at times, like Dr. Geske said, hair raising. I think when you come across post microbial infarction complications, it puts together so much of what we all love about cardiology, right? There's interventional, there's prevention in terms of trying to prevent these things from happening in the first place. There's multimodality imaging, critical care cardiology, interesting pharmacology, MCS, advanced heart failure, everything sort of comes together at this epicenter. So this has been just a phenomenal start to the Cardiners Beyond the Board series. Dr. Geske, thank you so much for your expertise. And to Jaya and Jenna, thank you for leading this episode. Thanks for having me. Beep. Beep.